standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. So, let's open with prayer. And those of you that can kneel with me if you want. And if not, the Lord understands infirmity. Well, Father, I just come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just thank you so much that we all can be here this evening. I just thank you for the blessings of fellowship. And I thank you that you have promised in your word where the two or more are gathered in your name, that there you are in the midst. And we claim that promise now. And I believe we all have come here to seek wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And so I know that your spirit, Jesus, will impart that to us. And so we pray for that now. And I just ask you to use me, not for any good that I've done, not for any good that is in me, but because I desire to be used to be a blessing to those that listen to these meetings. And so I just claim that promise now that you would use me as your vessel. And I thank you for your love and mercy to all of us. And I just pray all these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We want to do a little bit of a review of last night, night four, as we begin. So we were looking last night in Daniel 8 at this little horn more closely at this little horn that comes out of the goat, comes up on the western horn, this little horn that becomes exceeding great. And that exceeding great horn is the transition from pagan Rome to papal Rome. And if you think about the rise of pagan Rome into papal Rome, you're looking at about 2,180 years that that has existed between the papal and pagan and papal form. And there's a lot to understand about this horn because the attitudes of the two sides of it, and of course it also is in Daniel 7, pagan Rome and papal Rome, the little horn that comes up among the ten, the ten divisions of, of uh, pagan Rome when it fell, um, is their attitude. The attitude of pagan Rome was one of universal acceptance and tolerance. Pagans didn't mind you being whatever you wanted to be, and we see that even today. It's okay to be whatever you want to be in our world, just as long as you don't say that whatever you are is greater than whatever we believe. That, you don't have a problem. And so that was the way it was in pagan Rome. Everything was fine as long as you didn't say that your religion was better than anybody else's, and certainly if you did not say that yours was above Caesar, because Caesar was at the top of everything. Now, with the papacy, the papacy persecuted paganism, and The papacy had zero tolerance. Papal Rome, for 1260 years, what is referred to as the Dark Ages, had zero tolerance for anything other than itself. If you did not go along with the system, then they persecuted you. And even though their system is built on paganism, the very foundations of... But at the same time, it had to be their version of paganism. Nothing else. And so then, uh, I want to show you a picture here. This is a 13th century fresco of Sylvester I and Constantine the Great showing the purported donation of Rome to the papacy because there came a point in time where the capital of Rome relocated to Constantinople and it was given over to the Pope. Here's another picture of it. This is a different one of Raphael, the donation of Constantine where here we see the emperor handing over a soldier to the pope, the the chief of papal Rome. And so really, Rome never fell. It just changed. 
if you go with me to Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13, and of course, we covered a lot of these ideas already as to who the dragon is of Revelation 12, which would be pagan, the pagan form of Rome. It says in verse 2, about the middle of the verse, it says the dragon, or towards the end of the verse actually, the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Pagan Rome gave to papal Rome the power, the seat of government, that being Rome itself, and the great authority of Rome. Because the papacy then for 1260 years after 538 was over everyone. Everyone answered to the Pope. If the Pope declared something anathema, well, then people got scared. They didn't want to uh, do that. We see how the kings were controlled in this way. Actually, whole societies being controlled by this. So now on night two, we discussed the time, time, and the dividing of time. And this is found in Daniel chapter 7. Um, let's go there and we'll read it in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, looking in verse, it says in verse 25, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time, times, and the dividing of time. So this time, times, and dividing of time, time in the Bible is a year. And a prophetic year in the Bible is 360 days. So one time being 360 days, two times being 720 days, and then half of a time, half a year, 180 days, and you add all that together and you get 1,260 days. Now we discussed what's called the day for year principle. We find that in the book of Numbers. Uh, Numbers chapter 14, let's go there very quickly, I'll show you that. Numbers 14, just show you that one. And there's also one in Ezekiel, but for sake of time, we'll just look at the one in Numbers. Numbers 14, verse 34. And this is dealing with the children of Israel after the ten spies have gone out and spied out the land and they've come back. And, of course, they rebelled against going into the promised land based on the bad report of eight spies. Joshua and Caleb gave a good report, but they believed the bad report. And so in verse 34 it says, After the number of days in which he searched the land, even 40 days, each day for a year, Ye shall bear your iniquities even 40 years, and ye shall know my breach of promise. So we have a day for your principle here. So then in prophetic time. So 1260 days represents 1260 years. And that fits perfectly with what happened with the papacy from 538 to February 10th of 1798 when General Berthier entered into Rome and took the Pope off his seat and confiscated the lands of the papacy and there was the, what the Bible referred to as the deadly wound, but it would heal. And we see that even now. So in Daniel 12, verse 7, we see this again. In Daniel 12, verse 7, the same time period, again. Turn with me there. Daniel 12, verse 7, it says, And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven and swear by him that liveth forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. 
And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Then it goes on to say in verse 8, And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Well, what is the time of the end? We have been told it has to do with verse 7. The time, times, and the dividing of time. The time of the end is 1798. Now, it is not the end. It's the time of the end. So when we get closer to the end of our sermon, we will be towards the time of the end of the message. But it doesn't mean the message is necessarily over. And so the world has not ended, but we are in the time of the world ending. And we see this more clearly as we look tonight in Daniel 11. So it's not only a marker for the close of papal dominance, known as the Dark Ages, but it's also a marker for the time of the end. 1798. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to start in Daniel 11. And we're going to be working off the principle of revelation and expansion. Daniel 11 is a grand expansion of Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8. It is an expansion in very minute detail. It takes it way down to the most minute details of the history that would take place from the time of Medo-Persia on to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, it makes it difficult for a lot of people to study the book of Daniel 11, and most people ignore it because it's full of figurative and symbolic language. But the history can be traced, and we're going to look at some of it tonight. And we're going to see that none need err if they follow the proper rules of biblical interpretation. And what this really does show us is the divine mind of God. It shows us that A mind that did this could not have been human because how could they understand these things? Now, we have to keep in mind, and we'll go there to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, why this would be the case. The Bible tells us why this is possible. In Isaiah 46, verse 9, it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there's none else. I am God and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So what makes God God? The fact that he can declare the end before you even have the beginning. He knows how it's going to end. Now, another way of looking at this as well, that word from could also be interpreted as by. So declaring the end by the beginning. And we see that principle as well in many things, i.e. dealing with Genesis chapter 16, as it talks about Ishmael and that he would be a wild man. And every man's hand against him, and his hand against every man, and he would dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And today, the descendants of Ishmael would be, the Ishmaelite would be the Islamic world, the Muslim. And truly today, every man's hand is against the Muslim, and the Muslim's hand is against every man, and they dwell in the presence of all their brethren. The Muslim faith is now in the whole world. It's everywhere. This whole immigration into Europe now, in the past four or five years, is a good example of something that, I don't think they would have ever thought would have happened, but it's happening now. Even overseas as well, even into New Zealand and Australia, we're seeing this happening. So we want to begin then in Daniel 11. So let's go there to Daniel 11 and see if it really does pick up again in an expansion of Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8. But now this time, it's picking up at Medo-Persia. Because Daniel is writing at that time. It says right here in verse 11, Also I, 
in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. Of course, this is the angel speaking to Daniel, and Daniel is writing what the angel Gabriel is showing him. And in verse 2 it says, And now will I show thee the truth. That's important to note. This is the truth. I talked about this on one night. I said, what is the truth? The truth is that A is A. Why is that the truth? Because nobody thinks to ever question the letter A as being the letter A, right? Nobody does that. The letter A is A. And then the letter B is B, C, D, E, the whole alphabet. Nobody questions it. They just know that that's what it is. And by knowing the alphabet, then you can begin to put together words. And being able to put together words, you can put together sentences. And being able to put together sentences, you can put together paragraphs. And with paragraphs, you can write stories. It's the same thing with how the Bible works. The Bible has solid truths. And when we accept it as truth, then we're able to get a picture, a story. And so, we keep reading here in verse 2. It says, Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. Who is this? Who is this fourth king of Persia? This was Xerxes. He was the richest and last Persian king to invade Greece. And then in verse 3 it says, And a mighty king shall stand up, that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Who was the mighty king that stood up against Persia? That was Alexander the Great. And we saw this with Daniel 2, 7 and 8. Or excuse me. Yes, well, Daniel 7 and 8, Alexander the Great. In verse 4 it says, And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken, and shall be divided to the four winds of heaven, and not in his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up, even for others besides those. What's being said here? Well, we saw this in Daniel 7 with the four divisions. We see it, the four heads on the leopard. We see it with the four horns on the goat. And I'll point to my chart here. The four horns on this goat right here, representing the four divisions of Greece. And then once again here, we see now it being called the four winds. And it tells us that all of Alexander the Great's posterity, they would not stand. They would not inherit anything because within 15 years, in the battle of the generals, they were trying to take control of Greece. They killed off all of Alexander the Great's posterity. So then the generals were the ones that took control of it. And... We see that in the divisions of Greece. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. Let's keep reading in verse 5. It says, And the king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him, and shall uh, and have dominion, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. And in the end of years they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall she stand, or neither shall he stand nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. Here we see an introduction of the king of the south and the king of the north, and they are referred to many times throughout the book of Daniel 11 from that point forward. But it's essential for us to identify those two powers. So when we look at this map of the division of Greece, we see that to the west was Cassander. To the north was Lysimachus, to the east was Seleucus, and to the south was Ptolemy. This was the division. But what happened very shortly after was Lysimachus conquered Cassander. And then after that, Seleucus conquered Cassander. 
and then Seleucus became the controlling factor of the northern portion of Greece. Now, what I want you to notice here is Turkey. This is very important. So Turkey, which is today basically the center of the Islamic world, or at least Erdogan, is jockeying to be, once again, the caliph or the center of the Islamic world. That's our king of the north. To the south, we have the Ptolemies, Egypt. So here we have our king of the south. Therefore, we realize that we are dealing with geographical locations. And whoever controls that geographical location in the prophetic record is the king of the north or the king of the south. And that's how you can follow the history through Daniel 11. Now, we're not going to trace all that history tonight for sake of time because we could spend five nights just studying Daniel 11 and breaking it down. We're just hitting the high points. We're making broad strokes. But something to note as we continue here is to show you just how accurate Daniel 11 really is. Let's go to verse 20 of Daniel 11. And we read here. In verse 20, it says, Then shall stand up in his estate a razor of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. But within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. Who is this razor of taxes? Well, if you go with me to Luke chapter 2 in the New Testament, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we see who this razor of taxes is. We see Messiah right here in the middle of Daniel 11. And you need to keep in mind that Daniel is writing this, is being given this by the angel Gabriel 500 years before this history even takes place. In verse 1 we read, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So right here we see Caesar Augustus in verse 20. And at this time, Rome, pagan Rome, was at its glory. It had reached its height during this time. And Caesar, uh, Augustus Caesar, he died at the ripe old age of 76. Rome had enjoyed an era of peace during Augustus Caesar. The temple of Juno had remained closed during his whole reign. And Juno, if you know anything about Roman gods, Juno was the god of war. So whenever Rome was at war, the temple of Juno was open, and they prayed in that temple. But because Rome had had no conflict during the time of Caesar Augustus or Augustus Caesar, the temple of Juno remained closed. And this is basically what verse 20 tells us of Daniel 11. Neither in anger nor in battle. Died in the ripe old age of 76. Now in verse 21 it says, And in his estate shall stand up a vile person, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Who is this vile person that came up after Caesar Augustus? Well, it was Tiberius Caesar. And in verse 22, we read, And with the arms of a flood shall they be overthrown from before him and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. So it shows us here also in verse 22, the end not only of Tiberius Caesar, but also what would happen to the prince of the covenant, that being Jesus Christ, that he would die under the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Do we see this in the prophetic record, or do we see this in the biblical record? Well, if you go to Luke chapter 3, verse 1, it's right here for us. And we let the Bible be its own interpreter. And that is really what it's about with a historical methodology of Bible study, is you let the Bible interpret itself when you use a figurative methodology or well, in other words a literal historical methodology and then when you find a figure in the bible 
then you go to the Bible and you get your definition. You don't just make one up. If you don't get it from the Bible, then you don't have a definition. In verse 1 it says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Eutura, and of the reign of Trachonitis, and Lanasanius, and the tetrarch of Albany, Ananias and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, what is amazing to me is that the record is so clear here that none need error. Like, we really can see from the Bible that it confirms its history for us. We don't have to go anywhere else to know that we're dealing with Tiberius Caesar during the time of Jesus Christ. 27 AD is commonly understood as when John the Baptist began to be baptizing and Jesus Christ was baptized. Now, his ministry went for three and a half years before he was crucified. So then, Tiberius Caesar died in 37 AD. Jesus Christ would have been crucified in 30 and a half AD. So therefore, we see the record of Daniel 11 being perfectly accurate about Tiberius Caesar and Messiah. Powerful, right? Because that was written 500 years before it even happened. Let's go back now to Daniel 11. And as we go there, we need to really consider all that we have learned so far. Because we have consistently seen that history confirms the prophetic record. You see, the way Bible prophecy works, it's like a clock. Okay? On the clock, you have your minutes or hours, however you want to think of it, but your sections of the clock, which are prophetic periods or historical events. And the hand of prophecy merely sweeps along your clock. And when you fulfill an event, then you have moved forward on the prophetic clock. And as you keep going along the prophetic clock, you know where you are in time. So what really makes prophecy significant to us is being able to look to the past and seeing where the history has been fulfilled, and it lets us know where we are now in time. And everything would suggest that we are really at about midnight. We are right at the return of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so significant to understand these things. And we are told in the book of Daniel that the wise will understand these things. It actually tells us right here in verse 10 of Daniel 12. I'll read it to you. I read it last night. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. The wise will understand these things. Those that don't take the time to look and examine these things will miss them. And, of course, our theme has been Proverbs 27, verse 12, which tells us a prudent man or a wise man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. The foolish. We want to be wise. Now, as we think about all this, if we see all this past historical events being fulfilled, what can we expect about any future historical events that we're looking for? We can expect perfect fulfillment. Amen? We should be able to expect that. We should be able to trust it, that we would not need to be ashamed and that then we could boldly declare to others that this is what's coming. Now, we can't necessarily say exactly how it's going to play out, but the way I've come to understand it and the way most people come to understand this is they, lose, is they use a historical methodology is once you see the players moving and active, then you know that you've got to be close. 
It's just kind of like in the springtime. When you start seeing buds coming out on the trees, then you know that summer is on the way. And that's what Jesus says. No man knoweth the day or hour of his coming. But we do know the seasons. And when we see certain things happening, then we know that summer is close. And summer is the return of Jesus Christ. We're close to summer. We probably already have begun it, really, with what we see happening right now, even in world events. And we'll talk about that, that in a moment. Amos chapter 3, verse 7 tells us, which flip there just for a moment. It says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Now, who are the prophets? Well, as we're examining this, the prophets Daniel and the prophets John. So the secrets will be revealed in these two books. If we know how to study them, we'll find the secrets. Now, in Daniel 11, we're going to pick it up now in verse 39, because this is where we want to be. This is the kind of the climax of everything that we have been doing here these past four nights, was to get to this place. And so then, we see here in verse 39, Thus shall he do, thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries, and shall overflow, and pass over. Now there's some key points here that we need to investigate if we're going to know where we are in prophetic history, prophetic time. Points to note. The first one would be in verse 39, a strange God. We need to understand that. Point number two would be the dividing of the land for gain. We need to understand that. Point number three would be, who is the him that's mentioned here in verse 40? Point number five would be, who is the king of the south that pushes at him? And who is the king of the north that comes against him like a whirlwind? So at this point, we can say that we already have three of these clues that we need to know. The time of the end being 1798. We've proved that from Daniel 12. The king of the south being Egypt. And how do we know that? Because if we look at our territory here, we see that the Ptolemies control Egypt, and Egypt is the southern portion of Greece. So we know we have the king of the south. Whoever occupies that territory is the king of the south. And then the king of the north, being north of the pleasant land, which is Jerusalem, Palestine, anything north of that now is the northern king of the north, that being the area of Turkey. So we have those three points. So we need to deal with some things in verse 39. And one of the clues, as we're looking at verse 39 and understanding who this hymn is, because the hymn is whoever's spoken on verse 39, is that it's happening around 1798. Why? Because verse 40 says, and at the time of the end. So what was going on at this time? Well, we had the French Revolution taking place. And in February 10th of 1798, Berthier, the general of Napoleon, head of the Republican Army of France, entered Rome and took the Pope captive. And the papal government was abolished and the Pope died in exile in 1799. Now, here's the thing. Some have thought here in verse 39 that this could apply to the papacy. But did the papacy, in the latter part of this, ever divide the land for gain? Well, you can search high and low through history and you will never find where the papacy has ever divided land for gain, and certainly 
not around 1798. You're just not going to find that. It's not there. So who did do it? Well, before the revolution, the French Revolution, the land was owned by a few landlords with immense estates in France. And it was required by law that the land remain undivided. No heirs or creditors could divide that land. But the thing about it is with the French Revolution, it knew no law. Because this is where we get the idea of anarchy. Anarchy in France. Absolute confusion. And so all noble titles were abolished. Part of the reason why they had the French Revolution is because the nobility had become so powerful and so oppressive that the commoner revolted against it. And so the land was disposed into small parcels to benefit the masses. And plus, the government needed funds to keep going forward with the war debt that they had run up. And so the large estates were confiscated, and they were sold at auction. Two-thirds of the land of France was confiscated and sold at auction. The net worth of it today would be around $3 billion from the sales of it. They collected $700 million sterling at that time. But here's the thing. You search high and low through history, and you will never find when this happened with any other country, especially around 1798. It was only France. So we know, or should know, just from that one point alone, the dividing the land for gain in verse 39, that we're dealing with France. But here's the other aspect of it. It says here in verse 39, he, thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God. Well, did France take on a strange God? Why would it even want a strange God? Revelation 13.10. Let's go there for a moment. In Revelation 13.10, it tells us something that helps with this understanding. Revelation 13.10 says, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Now, Revelation 13, from verse 1 on to this point, has been dealing with papal Rome. That's who's being talked about here. We talked about this on night 3. Let's read a little bit about some history of France so we can understand why this leading into captivity and going into captivity and killing with the sword and must be killed with the sword, what that really means. France was the child of the papacy by the Frank barbarian king Clovis. Let me read you a couple of things from history. It says, in Gregory's famous history of the Franks, the cruel and unscrupulous king appears as God's chosen instrument for the extension of the Catholic faith. Certainly Clovis quickly learned to combine his own interests with those of the church, and the alliance between the Pope and the Frankish kings was destined to have a great influence upon the history of Western Europe. And that's taken from Robertson's History of Western Europe, page 36. I'll read you something else as well from history. It says in AD 496, an event took place destined to exercise a momentous influence on the fate of the papacy and of Europe. In that year, Clovis, king of the Franks, in fulfillment of a vow made on the field of Tobelic, where he was victorious over the Alemanni, was baptized at Reims. On the memorial day, observes given, when Clovis ascended from the baptismal font, he alone in the Christian world deserved the name and prerogatives of a Catholic king. Rome hailed the auspicious event as a token of a long series of similar triumphs, and she rewarded the devotion of Clovis 
by, by bestowing on him the title which he has transmitted down through 5,400 years to his successors, or 1,400 years, excuse me, should be 1,400 years, to his successors, the kings of France of the eldest son of the church. And this is from Wiley's The Papacy, page 40. You see, the papacy referred to Clovis as their child. And all those subsequent French kings after him as their children. He was, in other words, the papacy was their father. And that's how France was looked upon. You see, papal oppression during the 1260 years was greatest in France. And so after all this oppression by the papacy, and of course that flowed into the aristocracy, then they were so sick of it that they said, you know what, we don't want any God anymore. We want to be atheists. And that's where we get the idea of atheism. In all history, there has never been a time when a nation said there is no God. It's never happened, especially with the history that we're dealing with. Because from Babylon all the way down to our time, there have been gods or singular God, but there have been gods. Never has there been a nation in history, from that time at least, written record, that someone says there's no God. Now, would that not be strange to say there is no God when you come through a pagan system or coming out of pagan system into papal system? Yes, it's a strange God in the sense that there's no God. France broke from all of this and said, our God is reason. And they exalted the goddess of reason. So in all this now, we have our hymn, who is the hymn in verse 40, and we can go forward. So in verse 40 we read, And at the time of the end shall the king of the south, the time of the end being 1798, shall the king of the south, that being Egypt, push at him, which would be France, and the king of the north, that being Turkey, shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. Do we see this kind of history in 1798? And we do. We see open hostility, open hostility between France and Egypt starting then. Why? Well, Napoleon had a big ego. Have you ever heard of the Napoleon complex? Napoleon was bored. He couldn't go fight against England. He needed something to do. And so he saw Egypt as an easy target for conquest. And he decided that he would go attack Egypt to continue his fame. It's also a vulnerable point against England by intercepting the eastern trade that England would have through Egypt. So Napoleon saw it as a strategic move as well because he had a desire to conquer England too. Now, in February 10th of 1798, Rome falls to Berthier and the Pope is taken captive. And so then, on March 5th, very shortly thereafter, Napoleon gets his marching orders to go ahead and attack Egypt. And on May 3rd, he leaves Paris. May 3rd of 1798, he leaves Paris for Egypt. He sets sail on the 19th with 40,000 troops and 10,000 sailors. And in July 5th of 1798, he takes Alexandria. On the 23rd of July, we have the Battle of the Pyramids. And on the 24th, Napoleon has now entered Cairo. Well, what happens? You can imagine the English, seeing that Napoleon has done exactly what he had intended to do, was to cut off their trade route. They go to Turkey. They go to the Sultan of Turkey. And they stir him up and get him excited 
against Napoleon. And so the Sultan of Turkey then declares war on France. And he is jealous over the fact that Napoleon now has Egypt because Egypt has remained pretty much independent from the Ottoman Empire. And now France has it. So then, what does he do? He decides to attack Napoleon. Now, on February 27th of 1799, Napoleon marches towards Syria with 18,000 men. But on March 18th of 1799, he's met by the Turks, and they fight for 60 days. On May 21st, one of the very first times, actually the first time Napoleon has ever had to retreat, he retreats back to Egypt. And thus we see in verse 40 that the Turk, the king of the north, overflows France and defeats them and causes a retreat. Now in verse 41 it says, He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. Do we see this history? In verse 41, 26 days France retreats to Egypt, and all the lands, everything that France has gained, has now been lost. Jerusalem falls now into the hand of the Turk, and to this day, that mosque sits there. Let me show you a slide here. This kingdom of Ammon, Moab, and Edom. What region is this today? This is Syria, Palestine. Turkey passes by it on its march down, passing through the Holy Land, the Pleasant Land. Let's read in verse 42. It says, He shall stretch forth his hand upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So what happens here? Cairo is taken back on June 27th of 1801. Alexandria is recovered September 2nd of 1801 from France. And Egypt now becomes subject to the Turk. Now, the Egyptians did not like being controlled by France, but they did not want to be controlled by the Turk at all. They did not want that, so they did not escape Turkish control. They would rather have had the French over them because the French would have at least advanced them. They were not advanced by the Turk. And we'll be told why here in just a moment. Verse 43. But he shall have power over all, or he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Because the Turk, when they got control of Egypt, they put them in tribute to them, impoverished them, held them down. And then it says, and the Libyans and Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Whose steps is that? The king of the north, the Turk, the Muslim. And to this day, Libya and Ethiopian, or Libya and Ethiopia are Muslim. Now in verse 44 it says, But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly make away many. Now, it has been understood the fulfillment of this verse is found in the Crimean War of 1853 to 1856. It seems to be a pretty close fulfillment, and the reason why is that at this time now, the Turk, the Ottoman Empire, has become referred to as the sick man of the East, no longer having its power. If you know, of course, we looked at the size of the Ottoman Empire at one time. At one time, the Muslim controlled pretty much all of Europe. Now it has shrunk down to a very small area of Turkey at that time. 
and it's being held up by other nations. And the reason why is because this is such a strategic area because of the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea. Whoever would control this area basically can control all of Europe. And so it is commonly known that when this area falls and is no longer being propped up, that we will enter into a world war, a great war as the Bible describes it. We are really on the precipice of a great war right now because this is such a strategic location to have. Whoever has this location controls Europe. So the history of this is better understood in Revelation chapter 9, which we talked a little bit about on first night, especially in the sixth trumpet or the second woe. Because that is when it became the sick man of the east. But we're hitting the high points here. But the Othman Empire fell August 11th of 1840, and it actually is a perfect fulfillment, the fall of the Turkish Othman Empire in 1840, August 11th, according to a prophecy, a time prophecy, within Revelation 9, using the day for your principle, we could find that in the sixth trumpet. But that's something we'll have to study in more detail later, because that's not something that we have time to get into tonight. But that's another aspect of this line of prophecy here from Revelation 9 and 11 that deals with the Turk, starting with the Saracene and then the Turk. Let's read verse 45 now, because we are at verse 45 basically. And if we're not at verse 45, we are literally seeing verse 44 playing out again. And we'll look at that in just a moment. We'll talk about the players here and who this would have to be. But in verse 45 we read, And he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. That being the king of the north. That being the Turk or the Muslim coming to his end and none shall help him. What is the glorious holy mountain? In the margin, if you have a marginal reference Bible, you would read the glorious holy mountain is the mountain of holiness. And this would be the mountain upon which Jerusalem sits. And between the seas would be the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. Many times in the past, as we think about this as well, because it says he shall come to his end and none shall help him, the Turk or the Muslim has been assisted by the European countries to stand. But there's going to come a time when no one's going to assist them to stand anymore. And if you have been keeping up with any of the rhetoric of Erdogan, of course, they don't really report on, on main news, but if you have been following this at all, you know that Erdogan is saying that we need to attack Jerusalem. We need to take that. They want that. And then with what has happened with um, Donald Trump, our president, and making Israel now the capital of Jerusalem, or Jerusalem the capital of Israel, then you have incited the Muslim to want to take up arms and say, you know what, we're going to take that back. We want that back. And so we are at some very interesting times right now. Today, the United Nations is propping up Turkey. But if Turkey keeps doing the things that it's doing, then they're not going to help them anymore. And Erdogan is becoming more and more independent in his ideology and how he feels like he wants to break away from the United Nations. I don't know if you've been keeping up with this news, but this is what has been happening. And all this has been referred to as the Eastern question. Now, let's look in verse 44 again just for a moment here. It says, tidings out of the east and out of the north. Who is directly north of Turkey? Directly north of Turkey is Russia. And we need to understand some history about Russia. 
that would give us a clue as to why Russia really is such a threat to Turkey, even though right now they appear to be friends again. Peter the Great. Peter the Great became the sovereign dictator, or however it would have been, of, of Russia in 1688 to 1725. And his last will, statement, was that they needed to do everything to take Constantinople, to incite war in Turkey, to get control of the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea, to penetrate the Persian Gulf, and reestablish by way of Syria trade routes. In many ways, Putin sees himself as someone to fulfill the last will and testament of Peter the Great. He sees himself as someone that needs to do that. And so then, there is a desire within the Russian mindset to take Turkey. I do not believe that they're going to remain friends for very long. Russia wants that area. Why does Russia want that area? Because they have no natural access. They don't have a seaport. They have to go all the way up here across Siberia to be able to have a port for their military. But if they had control of the Black Sea, then they could have arms here and then they could control Europe from there. If they had Syria, they'd be able to open up their trade routes again and control trade through here, which they don't have. So there is a real desire to control the Middle East, and that's why you see the conflict that we see right now with Russia. Now, directly east, and that, of course, at one time understood as the Eastern question, and still to this day has been called that, is China. And our prophecy students back then understood that the Eastern question had to do with China relating into all of this. But who is America's number one trade partner today? China. So our very association with China would make America a part of the Eastern question. And what has been the rhetoric of Donald Trump? We need to take down the Muslim and take control of not only Israel, but all of the Middle East. So once again, we're looking at this idea of verse 44, tidings out of the east, now the north shall trouble the Muslim. And that is what is happening even now, as we see. They're being troubled. And verse 45 tells us that at some point, they're going to remove from Turkey and they're going to seek to plant their power, their seat of authority in the pleasant land, Jerusalem. And when they do so, they're going to come to their end and none is going to help them. And I don't know how that will work out because I guess we'll only see when it happens. But when something comes to its end, if I say you're going to come to your end, that means you're going to be no more. And I would tend to think that anyone else associated with that area will come to their end as well, that being the Jews. So, what are we told happens after that? Daniel 12, 1 tells us, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. At that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. Now, most people understand the time of trouble is the time of the falling of the plagues and everything that leads up to the return of Jesus Christ. So really, if we think about this and we understand it from a historical perspective, we are up against a wall. The next thing we're looking for is the time of trouble. So what are we going to do? Because what does the time of trouble bring at its end? We see this in Daniel 2. Let's go there. Daniel 2, verse 45. In Daniel 2, verse 45... We read, 
For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass thereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. We can know that when we get to this time that we're in now, we can be looking for a stone. That stone represents Christ. We'll smite the nations of the world. And that dream is certain, that interpretation is sure. Now, in Daniel 7, it's described another way. In verse 11, it's described as, I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame, that being papal Rome. And then if you skip with me to verse 26, it says, But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. Now, that's significant as well, this judgment. We haven't even had time to look at that. That's a whole other aspect of prophecy that we should understand. The judgment that's spoken of in Daniel 7. I have been really hitting high points. Now in verse 25 of Daniel 8 we read, And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Perhaps you've heard of the Battle of Armageddon, spoken of in Revelation. The Battle of Armageddon is a real battle, a battle of the world, the battle of the kings of the world that try to resist the return of Jesus Christ. And the Bible would tell us that they're being led by the papal Rome. That's the beast of Revelation 13. America is involved in this as well. I'm sorry to tell you that. I mean, that can be proven as well. America is a part of all this. And we see a really coming together of what's called ecumenicalism, all faiths blending together underneath the papacy. We see this happening. This is talked of in the Bible. I don't say these things to shame anyone. I'm just here to, you know, preach what the Bible shows us. Don't kill the messenger. Uh, (laughs) But this is what's being described. Now, Jesus has a question. In Luke chapter 18, let's go there. In Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus asks a question. He says here, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, that being Jesus Christ returns, shall he find faith in the earth? The question Jesus asks. Well, he will find faith, but he's not going to find a lot. He's going to find very little. And he defines what that faith is going to look like in Revelation 14. We haven't dealt that much with Revelation 14, but we need to look at it. In Revelation 14, starting in verse 1, we're going to close on this this evening. And just touch briefly on these angels in Revelation 14. But of course, it begins with talking about the 144,000. Now flip back to my chart here so you can see. Right here on the chart, They understood these angels, these three angels. And at the end of these three angels, in Revelation 14, is the return of Jesus Christ. So it's important to understand Revelation 14 and what these angels have to show us. It's also on this chart as well. Except this way it's a little bit different. It's in a line this way, horizontally, and then the return of Christ. Now what's interesting to me in how they did the chart here is that with this last angel... And then this woe angel, this third angel, we have the return of Christ, meaning they are combined. And we do see that symbolically, actually, if we follow this out. We'd see it very clearly. 
But in verse 1 we read, he says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. The name of the father written in those that belong to Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song, but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Now, what is it about these 144,000? Because these are those that live right before Christ returns. It says, these are they which are not defiled with women. Now, we know that women in Bible prophecy represents a church. And we're told that we're to come out of Babylon. We hear this, or we see this a little bit further in verse 14. So these are pure followers of Jesus, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb with us, so whether he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God, the Father, and the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, no duplicity, no deceit. For they are without fault before the throne of God. And then in verse 6 it tells us, it says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. What is this everlasting gospel that will be preached to the whole world? Well, the testimony of Jesus Christ was that he was the literal son of God, his father. That is the everlasting gospel. It's just that simple. I know that might seem kind of strange, but it really is that simple. That was the testimony of Jesus. I am the son of my father, and that's why they crucified him. But then it goes on to say here in verse 7, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven, earth, and sea, and fountains of waters. Fear God. Why should we fear God and give glory to him? What is this referencing? Well, if you go with me to Daniel chapter 7, we see it. In Daniel 7, what this is talking about. Now, we're hitting the high points again here. This is something that really needs to be studied thoroughly, and we don't have time to do that in five days. But it's something that we can continue to study. And in Daniel chapter 7, we read here, in verse 9, what is being spoken of here. It says in verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands and thousands ministered unto him and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. Now this is talking about the Father. This is not Jesus. The Ancient of Days is the Father, God the Father. How do I know this? Well, if you skip down to verse 13, it says... I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So the Son of God being brought before his Father. And then what happens when that happens? Verse 14, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. That's what we're looking for now the kingdom of glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Father is going to give him the kingdom. We are the kingdom that he wants to come and claim. He says to his disciples, he says, uh, he says, in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. And behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, that I will receive you, or I may receive you unto myself, that there you shall be with me forever. Amen? So this is what is being spoken of here in Daniel 7. Now, this judgment is a judgment that actually takes place before Jesus Christ returns. And we should understand that as well. But like I said, for sake of time, 
well, we, you know, need to study more later. Now, in verse 14, or excuse me, back to Revelation 14, we read here. In verse 7, it says, Sang with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now, we've talked about that. Now, this last part of verse 7 is, And worship him that made heaven, earth, and sea, and fountains of waters. You see a clear delineation in this verse between the Father and the Son of God. Why do I say that? Go with me to Hebrews chapter 1, and you'll see it. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read, Hebrews chapter 1, Starting in verse 1, it says, in Hebrews 1, verse 1, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, and what does it say here? By whom also he made the worlds. So the Father used the Son to make the worlds, plural. There's more than just us. In verse 3 it says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the Father, the Ancient of Days that we just read about in Daniel 7. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Why does he have a more excellent name? Because in verse 5 it says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now that ought to remind you of John 3.16. For God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen? So we're seeing this right here. Now, it says in verse 7, And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. Here we see the Father declaring his Son, on the same level as himself, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And we want to be a part of that kingdom, the kingdom of glory that Jesus Christ is preparing for us. We will be his subject in that kingdom. So, we are told in the scriptures that we must worship in spirit and in truth. We're going to begin to wrap up now. We have spent five nights seeing that we are dealing with a two-faced beast in Daniel 7, a little horn that waxes exceeding great in Daniel 8. We also see in Revelation 13 a beast, once again identified as the papacy, this is really what we're up against. We are seeing a perversion of truth. And it all comes from pagan Rome to papal Rome and now down to us in America because we have been caught up in this. If you turn with me back to Revelation 14, we see something else as we continue in these three angels. We're just going to touch on them very briefly. But in verse 8 it says, And there followed another, or came along with the angel that made the declaration of giving God glory, and for the hour of his judgment has come, and to worship the one that made heaven and earth. That's the Father and the Son in verse 7. And now in verse 8 it says, And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon fell at one time, 
a long time ago. Literal Babylon. Now we're dealing with spiritual Babylon. And spiritual Babylon is identified as papal Rome. That's spiritual Babylon. It's going to fall again. And why will it fall? Because it's made all nations drink of the wine of its fornication, of its error, of its deceit, of its duplicity. And then in verse 9 it says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead and his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. There is a need to come away from this Babylonian error that really all of us have been caught up in. I was caught up in it. All of us have drank the wine of Babylon in one way or another. You can't help it. You're born into it. We just always have been exposed to it. But what is this Babylonian confusion? It is a confusion because really paganized Christianity is not real. And that is confusing. I mean, what is more confusing than this? If we go to John 14, verse 6, we read something. John 14, verse 6 tells us, John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But then, if we read what Babylon says about itself, taken from Pope John the 23rd on November 4th of 1958, and Babylon, the papacy, much like the Medes and Persians, which is the second ruling empire on our image, once it states something about itself, it doesn't change its mind. It is what it believes about itself. It says, the Savior himself is the door of the sheepfold. I am the door of the sheep. Into this fold of Jesus Christ no man may enter unless he be led by the sovereign pontiff, that being the Pope, and only if they be united to him can men be saved. For the Roman pontiff is the vicar of Christ and his personal representative on earth. Now, that is confusion. That's confusion. Because Jesus Christ says, No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me except, or cometh unto the Father except by me. But here we see the Pope saying, No, that's different. You see, worship has been perverted. God's day of worship has even been perverted. And I know this might be shocking to some of you, but in Exodus chapter 20, we're told, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, and it was shocking to me when I first started learning these things, but it says in verse 10 of Exodus 20, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. You see, in the end, it really is about perverted worship. Because you cannot take something that belongs to the Lord. And I want to read a couple of things to you, just so you can see and understand what I'm talking about here. And what they even say about themselves. It is said by the papacy. It is well to remind the Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, and all Christians that the Bible does not support them anywhere in their observance of Sunday. Sunday is an institution of the Roman Catholic Church, and those who observe the day observe a commandment of the Catholic Church. That's Priest Brady in an address reported in the Elizabeth, New Jersey News, March 18th of 1903. 
Another one reads, Protestants accept Sunday rather than Saturday as the day for public worship after the Catholic Church made the change. But the Protestant mind does not seem to realize that in observing Sunday, they're accepting the authority of the spokesman for the church, the Pope. And that's taken from our Sunday visitor, February 5th, 1950. Now, I don't need to really read any more than that because there's plenty of this. You can just do your research on this and you will see consistently that Babylon claims Sunday as their day of worship. They are standing up against the prince of princes in more ways than we can even imagine. They've given us a false Sabbath. But what are we told as we close now in Revelation 14, verse 12, about God's people, those that will be wise, those that will shine as the brightness of the firmament, because I have one more verse I want to show you before we close. But in verse 12 it says of Revelation 14, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God, and that would be the Ten Commandments, and the faith of Jesus. What is the faith of Jesus? They believe that Jesus Christ is the literal Son of God. That was his faith. That's what he said, right? They asked him, they said, are you the Son of God? And he says, well, if I don't say I'm the Son of God, I'll be a liar like unto you. I am the Son of God. And at that point, they wanted to crucify him. But we close tonight in Daniel 12. Daniel 12. And in all of this, and it doesn't matter how many or how few, this is the call to you that have come or are watching these videos. And it's found in verse 3 of Daniel 12. It says, and they that be wise, now on the margin that's teachers, they that be wise or teachers shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness, that would be the truth, that would turn them away from this Babylonian air as the stars forever and ever. And my appeal to you, and I believe the appeal of Jesus, is will you be one of those wise ones? Will you be a teacher? Now, here's the thing. We've only talked about five nights of this. I have been studying some of these things for about almost 20 years. It's been in the last five years that I've really begun to understand exactly more clearly, a literal historical method of study and discovered some of the things that we've talked about here. That's why I'm here to teach it. I want to be counted as wise. I want to shine as the brightness of the firm. And my appeal to those that are listening is to continue to study. Don't stop. You know, realize that maybe some of the things that you've heard here might be a little startling. You've not heard them before. That's okay. Just don't stop. Don't stop studying. Keep investigating. That would be my appeal. My other appeal would be is this. If you have not given your heart to the literal Son of God, Jesus Christ, give your heart to him. The Bible says, today if you will hear my voice, harden not your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. No guarantees that you get another appeal. If it, Jesus Christ is moving upon your heart, you don't necessarily, I don't like, you know, fear religion, but we don't know, you know, if we'll get that same kind of unction from the Spirit of Christ to come to him and to receive from him. Now, it doesn't mean that you solve all your problems tonight or you can figure out everything and work everything out as it would require you to follow Jesus in obedience because the patience of the saints are those that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. It doesn't mean you necessarily understand how all that will work out. But the Bible tells us that there must first be a willing and ready mind. And the question you have to answer is, am I willing? Because the Bible says, whosoever will. 
if you're willing, then he will teach you. He'll be faithful. He did it for the disciples. They came to him. They would ask him, would you explain us these things? And he would always explain. And if we come to Jesus in faith, asking him to explain to us, to help us to understand these things, he will. And so it's been a blessing to be here for the past five nights to speak these things and to share these things. And I hope that we can continue to study, you know, however that would work. Um, but uh, God bless all of you. And we'll close in prayer. Father, I come to you again in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just thank you so much for your love and mercy to us. I, I thank you for the sure word of prophecy and that you will open your word to those that are just babes. We don't have to be wise and and in the sense of the worldly wise, we don't have to be smart in the sense of the world. We just have to be humble and we have to be teachable. And if we'll be so, you will take the weakest of the weak and make him more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus if we just put our hand there by faith. And so I just pray that for all those that have been here for these meetings, all those that would watch these meetings, that they would just reach out the hand of faith and grasp your hand, Jesus. Take hold of our hearts and lead us on. With time is so short. We see all these things taking place in the world and we see players now that the Bible describes, that shows us clearly that with the Muslims, with Russia, with America, with the papacy, with even things that are happening in the ecumenical churches, all these things suggest that Jesus, you're coming very soon. And so I just pray that all those that would hear these things would be accounted worthy of eternal life, that none of us would, would, would miss it because, oh, you say Jesus, what is the value of a soul? What will man give in exchange for his soul? If he could have the whole world, it doesn't compare to the value of a soul. And so then we know that we have infinitesimal value to you, Jesus, or you would not have given yourself for us. And I pray by faith we all would believe and embrace that. And I thank you for your great love and mercy to us, and I pray all these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> Standing on the Platform of Truth. Pioneer Health and Missions.